According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 26. Our growth does come through the Scriptures as we study to show ourselves approved before God, a workman needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Matthew 26. There are parallel accounts in Mark 14 and in Luke 22. Only the briefest of parallels in John, John 18.1, which establishes the setting. But John 18 does not describe the, uh, the disciples that keep falling asleep and the specific prayers that the Lord offers up, the actual grief that He goes through, and, the, uh, and so forth. It just, John takes you right to the arrest and the trials and, and all of that, which we will get to. That's coming up. Episode 25 uh, will be His um, arrest, betrayal and arrest. And then uh, we'll follow that up with the trials. But for now, we're still dealing with the grief, the grief of Gethsemane, the crushing of our Lord Jesus Christ by God the Father, as we've been studying it from the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 53. We see in Matthew 26:30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's why we like to end each Bible class, or on Sundays anyway, when we have our main assembly for the week, we dismiss with a hymn. Uh, a lot of churches dismiss by passing a plate and hitting folks up for money. We, uh, we dismiss with a hymn on Sunday morning. And uh, we got that pattern here in Matthew 26:30. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then down to verses 36 through 46, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, uh, wine press, olive press, and uh, said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And they said to him, Well, you doctrinal sissy, grow up. No, that's not what they said. (laughs) All right. Um, I, I like to be very careful when I go through passages like this because of how I was raised, because of uh, certain pastors and the traditions that they had in years gone by, whereby any kind of emotional struggle was carnality. No questions asked. Any kind of emotional struggle was either carnality, willful, or just immaturity. So you need to grow up. See, And if you don't, well, then you're in emotional revolt. All right. And I was very thankful when I got under the ministry of Ralph Braun and I started to, he was doing a study in the book of Job and he was doing a study in Philippians. And uh, where he opened my eyes to recognize that not all emotional turmoil is deserves suffering. Uh, it's not all immaturity. Many, much of it's according to the will of God. And uh, how we trust in him through the seasons of distress is very critical. And we can't accuse our Lord of carnality. He never sinned. And we don't want to accuse him of immaturity. I don't think by any stretch. And so this statement here, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, we want to identify for what it is and recognize that we too are going to have grief in our soul. If the Holy Spirit can be grieved and if Christ can be grieved, if the Father can be grieved, well, then you bet we can be grieved. We're being molded into their image. Our thinking is being transformed into their thinking. And so we should be grieved. I'll be honest, there are occasions and events in the in the. Uh, outworking the Christian way of life, where if you are not grieved, something's wrong. You better be grieved when some of these things are taking place. And so uh, hopefully this will make sense as we work our way through. All right, this is where we are. It's where we, uh, it's been a couple weeks now. So let's uh, take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are equipped and humble to handle eternal truth, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful for truth. Thanking you, Father, for the faithfulness that you exhibit, the faithfulness your Son exhibited and continues to exhibit, the faithfulness of your Spirit in our lives day by day. Father, I pray that we become imitators of that faithfulness. Father, I pray especially at this time as our congregation is being faced with discouragements and and, um, disgruntled uh, demons that prowl about. 
So, Father, help us to rejoice always. Help us to, uh, to shove those uh, discouragements off to the side. Help us to be an imitator of our Savior. And uh, help us to learn from this night, this night in which he was betrayed, this night in which he was left alone. Even his closest disciples, Father, kept falling asleep and leaving him by himself to sweat these great drops of blood and to wrestle with you. So, Father, open our eyes to this truth. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. As we set this up under point one, Jesus and his eleven crossed the Kidron to the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane where there was a garden. We were able to firmly fix the context for this by comparing John 18.1 where the uh, valley, the Kidron Valley is mentioned. Whether you want to call it a brook, a valley, a ravine, or a torrent, it's all the same thing. It's, uh, it's dry during the non-rainy season and it's a rushing torrent during the rainy season, which is the winter. That's why uh, Jerusalem is warned, uh, you know, pray that your flight might not be in the winter because this uh, torrent that rushes through here is going to be a problem for you trying to get across it. So Jesus and his disciples, 11 at this point, Judas has gone to fetch the soldiers. Jesus and his 11 disciples crossed the Kidron uh, to the Mount of Olives. And it's specifically called the Mount of Olives in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to a place called Gethsemane. Luke doesn't call it Gethsemane. He just leaves it as Mount of Olives. But uh, Matthew and Mark specifically tag it as Gethsemane. Okay, press, wine press, olive press. Matthew 26, 36, Mark 14, 32, where there was a garden. Interestingly enough, neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke mention the garden, but John does, John 18, 1. And so we combine them all together to, uh, to get this full context. Jesus had often met his disciples here. This was his custom. This was the predictability that allowed Judas to lead the soldiers here. We recognize that when you're under conflict and those are seeking to hunt you down and bring you to harm, uh, you might be smart to go ahead and break up your routine. Don't do what you normally do. Change your patterns. Don't get predictable. Um, That's if you don't want to get caught. Jesus, though, had to get caught. He knew who the betrayer was. He knew where the arrest was going to take place. And there was nowhere else in the world he was going to go this night except this garden at this time. And we'll talk about that when he allows himself to be arrested. Peter was grabbing a sword and ready to, I guess, fight off the entire Roman Empire single-handedly or something. I don't know what Peter thought he was doing. But uh, he grabbed a sword and started chopping off ears. And uh, the Lord stopped that and said no. And he allowed himself to be arrested. Well, we'll deal with that. Coming up. Secondly, uh, Gethsemane means wine press, and uh, the imagery of this, I think, is the impact of the entire episode. The wine press, the recognition that he went there to be pressed, not to do the pressing, but to be pressed. He, now he will do his own pressing at Second Advent. He will do his own pressing, and uh, these are the you know glory, glory, hallelujah. He will. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, and yeah, conquer this and that. All right, that's all Second Advent, folks. That's not what he's doing First Advent, okay? First Advent, he's being crushed. He's being crushed. And if he doesn't learn these lessons, if he doesn't learn the lessons of being crushed, then he is not equipped to do the crushing at Second Advent. All right? You cannot have the, the uh, crown without the cross. And trying to get him out of order or trying to do one without the other. That's the snare of the Satan offer. And try to give him the kingdom without the cross. Said, just bow down and worship me. I'll give you all these kingdoms and all their glory. What he was really saying is you don't have to suffer. You don't have to go to the cross. There's an easier way. There's a faster way. There's a better way. See, it's not right. It's not fair. You should come to me. Of course, Jesus rejected that. All right, Gethsemane means wine press. Jesus must submit to this crushing before he can tread his own wine press. You can read about that in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. And, of course, Revelation 19. In verse 15, he's going to learn obedience through the things which he suffers. Finally, both Adam's failure and Jesus' victory both took place in a garden. I find that remarkable. The tale of two, I guess if Dickens had the tale of two cities, then we can think of this as the tale of two gardens. All right. Adam was faithless, rebelled, and humanity fell into sin. Jesus was faithful, obedient, and made provision for humanity to be redeemed. Adam's failure and Jesus' victory both took place in a garden. All right, which brings us now to point two, these disciples. Now, I'm calling them the eleven. Minus three is eight. There may have actually been more. 
because we don't have a specific number here. It just says Jesus went forth with his disciples. Um, the reason why we suspect there may have been more here is because with the selection of Matthias in Acts chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, terrible, mis, I misspoke, terrible. Matthias is chosen in Acts chapter 1, and it is so foundational, so important, because Pentecost occurs in Acts chapter 2. The church begins in Acts chapter 2. The selection of Matthias precedes that. He is Judas's legitimate replacement for the twelve at the beginning of the church. <clears throat> but you'll note, <coughs> as they make this selection in Acts chapter 1, uh, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, verse 15, a gathering about 120 persons and there, uh, was there together. And he said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us, reckoned, counted, counted among us and received his share in this ministry. All right. Amazingly enough, since he was unregenerate, since he was an unbeliever. But remember, stewardship in the Old Testament did not require salvation. Not like it does for us today. Okay. You got to become the high priest when your dad died, if your dad was the, the previous high priest. And whether you were saved or not didn't make a difference. Your high priesthood was based upon an earthly requirement. Again, that's Old Testament. And so it's not surprising that Judas had a share in this ministry as an Old Testament uh, person, along with those other Old Testament persons. He was an unbeliever. The eleven were believers. Now, um, goes on to describe some things we'll deal with in verses 18 and 19. Um, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. That's gruesome. I always like teaching that right before lunch. And... Um, it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language uh, that field was called Hokeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written, and this is the, the psalm that we looked at Sunday, Psalm 109, you remember this? Uh, let his homestead be desolate, let no one dwell in it, let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary, and this is what I want to get to, this is why I think we can demonstrate that there were more than 11. There were more than 8 with Jesus on this night. There were at least 10, possibly more it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the lord jesus went in and out among us beginning with the baptism of john until the day that he was taken up from us that whole entirety of his anointed ministry now they may not they weren't witnesses of his childhood and they weren't witnesses of other episodes but from the point he was baptized from the river jordan they were a part of his ministry they were his followers okay that doesn't mean they were with him every waking moment. Okay, Just like you can be a member of Austin Bible Church and you're not necessarily attending every single Bible class. You may miss a class here and there. and uh, These men may have missed the upper room discourse. Or they may have been there for the upper room discourse. What I'm saying is, is we don't know. So, uh, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. Now, how many are there? It doesn't say, but it's got to be a uh, number of, of uh, I think it's, it's more than a few. So they put forward two men. Out of all the men that were eligible, they selected two of the men that were eligible. How many men were eligible? A dozen, two dozen, the, the whole 70? We don't know. But um, out of however many men were eligible, I think maybe a dozen or more, they selected two. Jo Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and, and Matthias. And the best thing about this is that you can scour Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You won't find either of these men in any of those gospel records. Okay? And I love that. That tells me that there's far more that's not recorded in the gospels compared with the amount that is recorded in the gospels. And so then they prayed and said to you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship. There's a ministry, there's an office. When we talk about gifts and ministries and offices, we have both a ministry and an office there from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. <laughs> Advanced Satanology there, let me tell you. 
What was Judas's place? Where did he go when he went to his own place? All right. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. He was added to the Hendeka, the eleven apostles. And we never have the number eleven after that applied to the apostles. It's always the twelve, the twelve, the twelve, throughout the rest of the book of Acts. It's the twelve. And uh, that's what we're dealing with. So, anyway, back to the garden. Was Matthias, and was he there this night? Was Joseph called Barsabbas? Were they there that night? Were they in the upper room? Did they get their feet washed? Did, uh, did they walk with him to the garden? Were they standing outside the garden? We don't know. They very well may have. They very well may have. Okay. So, if you want in parentheses, uh, in front of eight disciples, put at least eight disciples. <laughs> All right? Eight or more disciples were left to sit he- here while Peter, James, and John were taken over there. Now there we know it was three, because they're delineated. Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Peter, James, and John were taken over there. Now that over there becomes the new here, when Jesus says, stay here while I go a little beyond to pray. And so between verse 36, 38, and 39, we now have three localities that are spotlighted. So verse 36 has here and there. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Now, remarkably enough, the eight or more that were left here when he took them over there, the eight or more did not see the grieving and the distress. Not to the same extent, or maybe not even at all, that the three were permitted to see it. Okay. And I find that interesting. We want to make that observation. We want to explore what our application might be. What, um, what would be the impact if, if a disciple maybe that wasn't as close to the Lord, someone that didn't know him so well, someone that didn't understand his heart, didn't understand his thinking, or didn't understand as much as maybe Peter and John did or James... If somebody, say, James the Less or Simon or whoever, one of these other disciples, if they would have seen him grieved and distressed, could they have handled it? What would that have done to their faith? What would, that have done? Would, they have, would they have bailed? Would they have run? Would they have lost confidence in him? We don't know. But he doesn't permit them to see that. And I think we ought to be mindful of that. You know, there's certain things we don't want our children to see as my wife and I wrestle over certain issues. Okay? There may be some things that I want my wife to see. Okay? As I wrestle with certain issues. Hardest thing in the world is being a pastor's wife sometimes. Okay? And uh, there's things that I want my wife to know about. Not that I'm keeping secrets from her, but I don't want her to develop mental attitude sin against some folks. Okay? Now, can that be carried too far? <laughs> Should we never tell anybody anything? No. That's taking it too far. What does he do here? He takes Peter, James, and John. And they're the ones that are allowed to see the grieving and the distress. And not only are they allowed to see it, but they get teaching related to it. Because he says to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Okay. So he says, I'm not going to lie to you. You see it plainly right before you. Remain here and keep watch with me. What I want is I want close brothers and sisters that will sit here and pray with me, no matter what. So there's the here and the there in verse 36. In verse 38, he says, remain here. So that's a new here. That's the here that was there in verse 36. Now it's here because they got there in verse 38. And then he went a little beyond in verse 39. Okay? So... He took them here so that they could see the grief, so he could tell them about it without those guys hearing it. And then he leaves them at the new here, goes a little beyond, and starts praying, saying, My Father, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. There's prayer number one. We're going we're gonna to try out all three of these prayers here in a moment. So there's the geography. Now, only one-fourth of his disciples, or less than a fourth if there's more than 12 at this point, 
Only one-fourth of his disciples have the capacity to share his deepest prayers. Only one-fourth of his disciples have the capacity to share his deepest prayers. And I find that interesting. Why, why do we have uh, 80 that attend on a Sunday morning and six that, or eight that show up for prayer? Why is that? Well, it's not that we exclude them. We don't ban anybody. We don't lock the door. We don't tell anybody, you don't belong here. In fact, we tell everybody, come. It'd be great if you did come. We've got lots of things to pray about. And yet, we recognize that that's a ministry that not every believer is going to take part in. Okay? And probably shouldn't take part in. It's like not everybody teaches Sunday school. Not everybody cuts the grass. Well, it'd be nice if they did. <laughs> I can always use more help with the grass, right? Not everybody changes diapers. Not every, you know, volunteering in the nursery. Not everybody uh, works in the library. Not everybody makes tapes. We don't do tapes anymore. CDs. Okay? point is, not everybody does everything, but everybody should at least do something. There's a ministry available. Bear some fruit. Christian way of life is not a spectator sport. All right. Capacity to share his deepest prayers. Secondly now, watchfulness is defined as wakefulness. Now I love the fact that they keep falling asleep here because the the physical reality of their physical sleep is the metaphor, okay, for spiritual sleep. And far too many believers are spiritually asleep. That's why they never pray about anything. Watchfulness is defined as wakefulness. So sleeping on guard duty is failure. By the way, drinking on duty is failure, <laughs> okay? Both of which leave you incapable of being alert. That's why the admonition is to stay awake and stay sober. So point B in the outline. This is main point two, sub point B. Watchfulness is defined as wakefulness. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6 and verse 10. Sleeping or drinking on guard duty is a failure. It is a failure. And depending on the circumstances, depending upon the army, depending upon the, if it's a time of war or not, different things... Sleeping on duty is a capital offense. You can be executed by your commanding officer. Why? Because you put your whole unit at risk. They were depending on you. And uh, if you're caught sleeping on duty or drunk on duty or anything, depending again, depending on if it's a wartime circumstance, you can be executed right then, right there. Especially in the Roman Empire. <laughs> okay? Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6 and verse 10. This is very dear to me because of my background in the military police and I've done countless hours on guard duty all night long. Eight years with the Sheriff's Department on the night shift. And uh, that was after four years as an MP in the Army. So uh, anything related to uh, guard duty, I understand very well. Guarded a lot of things I didn't think was worth guarding. <laughs> so they can have it. Who cares? Well, not my department. I'm told to watch it. I'm going to watch it. All right, First Thessalonians five. And what's interesting when you transition from four to five, chapter four is your powerful rapture passage. Chapter five is your second advent passage. And um, we ought to be having a, a frame of reference where we know our place in the plan of God. We ought to have a dispensational understanding of God's word. We ought to know that we're in the church age. We have no part of the tribulation of Israel. Okay? And so we're caught up to be with the Lord in the air. But then when it comes to uh, the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well. And this is what's remarkable. They were grounded in eschatology, even though Paul was just there for three weeks. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So this is a new topic. Day of the Lord in chapter 5 is not the same as the, um, the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to Him in chapter 4. While they, notice all the they's. And uh, there's they, 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 and then you. Okay. This is, uh, this is something that uh, the church 
needs to know about and understand the doctrine, but don't be fearful of because we're not going to be here to see it. So uh, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You've got no participation in this. So then let us not, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Remember, we're saved. So when the trumpet sounds and God takes his, uh, Jesus descends to gather his bride, we're out of here. And this world will have 100% unbelieving population on planet Earth. The human population will be 100% unbelieving with zero, not even one, remaining believer for a remnant. Zero. It's going to require uh, angelic evangelism. It's going to require uh, written materials, audio materials left behind. Very quickly, there's going to be salvation that's going to take place. 144,000 Jewish evangelists and others, countless others, will start getting saved after the rapture. But the split second after the rapture sounds, there are no believers on planet Earth. All right. So what's the admonition then? The admonition is, since this is what we are by grace through faith, let's live that way. Let's live that way. We are sons of light. Let's walk in the light. Let's keep our eyes open. So we are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Alert and sober. And so there's a whole, I'm not going to go into a vocabulary study on this, but the verb is Gregoreo, where we get the name Gregory. A couple of the popes were named Pope Gregory because they were, you know, alert. They were, you know, guardians of, of the papacy and whatnot. Okay? So let us not sleep as others do. As others do. You could even view this on a corporate basis. Okay? Uh, for comparing and contrasting ministries. Comparing and contrasting teaching. Trying to determine what church you belong in. Where, where do you fit? Well, what churches are sleeping and what churches are awake? What churches are teaching line upon line, precept upon precept? What churches are armoring their people for the angelic conflict? And then what churches are sleeping? Just muddling along, thinking, oh, everything's great. Everything's these rose-colored glasses about uh, how wonderful we are because we're, we're doing this, we're doing that. So then let uh, those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on. Now, this is not the uh, full battle suit of armor you wear in Ephesians chapter 6, but this is the uh, armor of alertness that you wear before you put on that full suit. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So this is your standard duty uniform when you're on alert status. If you're wearing this, then you're very prepared to go ahead and put on the panoply when uh, required to do so and engage in frontline combat. For God has not destined us for wrath, God has not destined us for wrath. We have no part in the day of the Lord. That's the day of God's coming wrath. We're not destined for that. The tribulation of Israel is for who? Israel. Okay. The time of Jacob's trouble is whose trouble? Jacob's trouble. You know, by so many things, the, the, the confusion about trying to make the church go through the tribulation just breaks my heart. We didn't have any part of the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. Why do we have, why do, why do people want to go through week number 70? God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, and here's the real beauty of it, the biggest losers in the church age who are totally spiritually asleep, that have no, never once bothered to learn the difference between Israel and the church, or uh, anything of that nature, guess what? They're getting raptured same as everybody. <laughs> Jesus is not walking away with a partial bride. Okay? It's just not happening. When I got married, I took my whole bride with me and we went off to our honeymoon. Every That's what every groom does. Okay? Thus we shall always be with the Lord. We, all of us, shall always be with the Lord. Okay? 
4.17, just across the page there. So whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. The rapture doctrine is designed to be an encouragement. 4.18 and 5.11 both make that very clear. We understand the rapture for its own sake in chapter 4, and we understand the rapture as keeping us from second advent, or from tribulation in, uh, in uh, chapter 5. Comfort one another, encourage one another, and build up one another just as you also are doing. All right. Watchfulness is defined as wakefulness. When he told his disciples, remain here and pray with me, he wants them to be watchful. He wants them to be wakeful. He wants them to be on the alert. And yet they're not going to. Their eyes were heavy. Their eyes were heavy and their sorrow kept putting them to sleep. At least that's how Dr. Luke diagnoses it. Their eyes were heavy. Point C for keeping notes. Point C. Their eyes were heavy. It's Matthew 26, 40 and 43. Mark 14, 37 and 40. Their eyes were heavy and their sorrow kept putting them to sleep. Luke 22, 45. Luke twenty two forty five. All right. Say, so, well, it's not their fault. <laughs> it's not their fault. Their eyes were heavy. They couldn't. It's not their fault. Okay. Well, he knows. He's mindful of our frame. He knows that we're about dust. He doesn't expect us to accomplish what we're not capable of accomplishing. But when he gives an imperative, he gives an imperative that he expects us to obey. And he issues an imperative never once. I defy anybody. I've done this for 17 years now. Show me an imperative from the Scripture where God commands us to do something that we are incapable of doing. Show me one. Their eyes were heavy and their sorrow kept putting them to sleep. If your eyes are heavy, then give that to the Lord. Say, Lord, my eyes are heavy. I'm supposed to be praying here. I keep falling asleep. Lord, keep me awake. My eyes are heavy. See, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is what the Lord is going to talk about here. I think uh, if the disciples truly embraced that and understood that, then they would have recognized, okay, <laughs> our flesh is weak. We keep falling asleep. But what we really need is a willing spirit. So we can give this to the Father and say, Father, keep us awake. It's only one more hour. It's only one more hour. All right. So he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is, all, if it is possible, if it is possible. We're going to discuss this in a moment. How can you say if it is possible when you're talking to the one for whom all things are possible? Doesn't that seem contradictory? It's not. I'll show you why. But my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will. In all honesty, that's Jesus' desire. In all honesty, Jesus' desire is for plan B. Let's not do this crucifixion thing. And his humanity didn't want to do it. Not as I will, but as you will. His humanity said, I can't insist on what I want. I have to obey what you want or I'm a sinner. And the moment he does that, it's done. The plan of salvation's over. No one else is qualified to go to this cross. Not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, found them sleeping, said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. You could not keep watch with me for one hour. Now, did they know it was going to be an hour? No. See, we can use this to teach imminency, by the way. The, the rapture is an imminent event. And so, you know, if, if you knew... If you knew for a fact that the rapture of the church was going to take place tomorrow morning, would that affect some of the testing you're facing right now? Would you feel a little bit better about some of the things you're dealing with? Would you not worry about some of the other things you've been worried about? Okay. So you know what? None of that may even happen because we could hear a trumpet and we'll all be gone. Okay. We're touring nursing homes right now trying to find a rehab place and one that looked just amazing and one that looked frightening. And I couldn't wait to get out of one of those places and I had my brother with me. I said, let's get out of here. And uh, so right now we're praying. I said, Lord, 
you're in charge. Um, this is where we want you to get her. And uh, don't don't allow her to put that other place. Man, I'm, I'm, you know, if I'm afraid of it, my brother's afraid of it. I certainly don't want my mom in there. Okay. Anyway, so we pray about it. And uh, we should learn something this afternoon. Maybe we'll learn something about it tomorrow. Who knows? And it's only for a, a two-week rehab thing anyway, and then and then she'll be uh, released to go home. But this is just because she's not ready for home yet, and the hospital's ready to uh, to kick her out. So anyway, so this is all in the Lord's hands. All right? But I tell you what, if the trumpet sounds at 1048, and I don't even get to finish this Bible class today, okay, and this microphone with a broken belt clip falls to the ground and all my clothes fall to the ground because we're out of here. And we're going to see mom on the way up. The point is, you couldn't keep watch with me for one hour. Just stay faithful. Stay in prayer. See what the Lord's going to do. This test may be an hour long, maybe ten hours long, maybe two weeks long, maybe a hundred years long. The point is, be faithful. Be faithful unto death. He says, keep watching and praying so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This, uh, of course, is reflective of his own concerns related to his own prayer life, but it also applies to them. His concerns for their, on their behalf in their prayer life. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they attend a lot of prayer meetings, but, you know, the flesh is weak. They're, they get tired. They get tired. Or they had a long day at work. Man, the, the fishing nets just got tangled and just took too long, and they were too tired. And after they finally got the nets untangled, they got them washed out. They got the boats taken care of. Everything was all set for tomorrow morning. And then uh, they just kind of looked at each other and said, Man, am I going to go to Bible class tonight or just go home pop my feet up? You know, <laughs> pop a cold one, watch the watch Fox News Channel or something. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it. Now you notice that's a bit different from his first prayer, isn't it? His first prayer is, if it is possible. Now he says, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it. The only way to let this cup pass from me is if it's an empty cup. If he drinks it. Well, your will be done. And at this point, he doesn't even voice his will in order to contrast it. He just leaves his will unstated and says, if this is what has to happen, if this is the have to in your plan, then your will be done. And on prayer number two, he doesn't even voice what his will would be. And that is a distinction. The wording on each of these prayers is different, and it's also different wording by the time we get to Mark, by the time we get to Luke. And so we'll, we'll list out all the, the wordings and recognize that we have what we have here. They're not verbatim quotations. That, that, that wasn't how things were done in the ancient world. Very rarely do we have a word-for-word -word verbatim citation. Um, and so in, we, can, we can piece together all of these parallel accounts and have, uh, and have in general, the gist of what, he, of what he specifically said that night. Um, I suspect he was speaking in either Aramaic or Hebrew anyway, and so these Greek scriptures are uh, going to be translations or paraphrases related to his literal words. All right, so he second time. And then he, again he came and he found them sleeping. What, what did I just tell you? Okay, and this is the point where he flies off the handle and he starts yelling at him and disciplining him and saying, I told you, how dare you disobey me? <laughs> no, not at all. Okay, that's what a human being might do. No, he left them again. And I find it interesting. In verse 43, it doesn't say that he woke them up or said anything to them. He's just, they're sleeping. No? All right, let them sleep. Left them again, went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. The same thing once more. Is that the same thing as prayer number two? Probably. And he came to the disciples. Now he wakes them up and says to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. 
The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let us be going doesn't mean let's get out of this garden to avoid arrest. He says, get up, let us be going. Let's go to the cross. Let's go to the cross. My escort is here. And so while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve. So, I mean, the words are still coming out of his mouth and in walks Judas with all the soldiers. All right. Uh, the account's pretty parallel there in Mark. We don't need to turn to that. But in Luke, we do have the different language. Luke twenty-two forty-five. And uh, he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and his disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. In other words, similar to the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Um, pray that you may not enter into temptation. All right? Don't put yourself under the, the temptation circumstances because the world's going to put you in plenty all, all on its own. You don't need to add to it with what you're doing. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Now did this happen for all three prayers? Did this only happen for the third and final prayer? Did this happen before he started praying? Or is, we, we don't have the precision on that, but it is interesting. It is interesting. Does that still happen today? Will angels strengthen you today? Will God's power strengthen you today? Will you find spiritual fortitude for the testing you're facing today? Absolutely and more so. The assets you and I have in the church age are beyond anything that Jesus had in His first advent. An angel from heaven appeared to Him, strengthening Him. I think pastors get two, by the way. That's the double portion concept from 1 Timothy. I'm probably... I may be wrong, but we'll find out when we get there. I hope I have to. I hope I have 20. All right. An angel from heaven appeared to him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Remarkable. And, of course, Dr. Luke is the one that's giving us this. Luke is the beloved physician. This is his gospel account. And many of the details he gives in both Luke and Acts uh, you know, betray his medical background. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Sleeping from sorrow. And so that's the detail that we didn't get from Matthew or, Luke or Mark. The sorrow. The grief. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that he may not enter into temptation. I'm glad that our Lord does this. This actually encourages me. This why question. Because honestly... A lot of times the why question is kind of stupid. You ask your child why he did something. And then you stop and say, you know what? I don't even want to know. There's no real answer to that. There's no good answer to that. And it doesn't matter why you, you jumped off the roof. You know, why were you even on the roof in the first place? No, I don't even want to know that. Okay? The why question is kind of dumb. It's the what question. What, what are you doing? But the Lord asks a why question, so I don't feel so bad when I do it. Um, why? Are you sleeping? All right. Point three. Jesus had greater sorrow than any of his disciples. Now, they would, their sorrow put them to sleep. Did he fall asleep in his sorrow? No, thank God he didn't. Jesus had a greater sorrow than any of his disciples. Indeed, my opinion I believe Jesus Christ experienced greater sorrow than any human being in history. I believe he carried the pains of every human being who ever lived. When it says our sorrows he bore, Isaiah 53 and verse 3. Jesus had greater sorrow than any of his disciples, indeed more than any human being in history. Greater than Job. Job's the pinnacle in the Old Testament in terms of undeserved suffering, in terms of sorrow. Jesus had greater sorrow than any of his disciples, indeed more than any human being in history, because he carried the pains of every human being who ever lived. Matthew 26, verses 37 and 38, Isaiah 53 and verse 3.
Again, my soul is deeply grieved. Deeply grieved to the point of death. If you ever want a, a fun exercise, I say fun, it's kind of depressing in a way, but just track through the Old Testament and New Testament and find everybody that wanted to die. Wish they were dead. Tried to kill themselves. Or uh, lamented that they weren't a, a stillborn. Or they lamented that they were not an abortion. Job said that if he'd have been aborted, it would have been better. Okay. And you'll find the list is longer than you think. You'll find, in fact, uh, some commentators think that uh, Jonah was committing suicide when he had himself thrown into the sea. He wanted to die. Better dead than going to Nineveh. <laughs> okay. Anyway, you'll, you'll find a list of folks there that uh, wanted to die. When he says sorrow to the point of death, grieved, deeply grieved to the point of death. And you realize there's actually things worse than death. The ongoing grief that where you'd be where death is actually preferable. Death would be merciful. But the ongoing grief is uh, is worse. Isaiah 53, we spent a lot of time in this two weeks ago. It's worth looking at again, though. When you understand the, the title represents the pinnacle. The title, Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows. Means it's the pinnacle. By definition, he is... There's nobody else that can take that title from him. Nobody else experienced more. He is the man of sorrows. Despised and forsaken of men, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, even intimate with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, despised and we do not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Now, whose is that then? Ours. And our sorrows he carried. Ours only? Or those of the whole world? Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Two events. Pierced through is the crucifixion. Crushing is the mental anguish of accepting our wrath in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. Pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. By His scourging, we are healed. All of us. All of us. Well, who's that? I'm just a simple guy. I just I, I read it and see what it says. Okay, It says all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Show me somebody that hasn't gone astray. Show me somebody that doesn't need to be saved. Show me somebody in the human race that can save themselves or doesn't need salvation. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. All of us collectively, each of us individually. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He bore it all. He bore it all. Like an old gospel hymn. He bore it all that I might live. Okay? So the... um, the issue here, again, I would take you down to verses 10 and 11. On the way, though, notice verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. You understand what that's about? The oppression when he accepted the, the sorrow? Judgment? When the Father judged that He was now qualified to be the sacrifice on on the next day, by oppression and judgment, He was taken away. Until those events took place, He was not qualified to let the soldiers arrest Him and take Him off to Calvary. He has to go from Gethsemane to Golgotha, but if He doesn't pass Gethsemane, He's not qualified for Golgotha. And for His generation... Or his kind or his people. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people. To whom the stroke was due. (laughs) 
I mean, just raise your hand. You should have been on that cross. I should have been on that cross. I am a sinner. I am worthy of eternal condemnation. So verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. It was the Father's good pleasure, the Father's good pleasure to crush Jesus Christ in the wine press called Gethsemane, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. If the Son is willing to go to the cross on Friday, then Thursday night God the Father is going to crush him so that he understands the totality of what that work is going to be. Verse 11, As a result of the anguish of his soul, until this anguish is experienced, propitiation is not possible. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. He will be satisfied that the offering of Jesus Christ will be 100% volitional with full awareness, full understanding, the totality of recognition of what that wrath is going to be like because the night before He accepted the totality of the anguish. By His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Until He gets this knowledge, until He learns that obedience to the things which He suffers, until he has victory in Gethsemane, he cannot be the justifier at Golgotha. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Okay? And I hope that this uh, this makes sense because this, to me, we, we, we rejoice in propitiation. We're thankful Jesus shouts, it is finished. We're, we're, we're delighted that God the Father was satisfied. Do we truly understand why the Father was satisfied? Have we, have we grasped the, the, uh, the necessity, the have-tos? The Father had certain have-tos. The Son had certain have-tos in order for a grace offer of salvation to be extended to the fallen human race. These were the have-tos. There was no other way to do it. All right, so this is what we deal with here. Now, it's interesting... Suffering is not always deserved. We know that. We've studied that. The world doesn't understand that. They didn't understand it in Job's day. They still deny it to this day. Prosperity theology tells you, oh, if you're serving God right, well, then, you know, all your bills will be paid. You'll have perfect health and your marriage will be great. Hmm. No, we suffer. We suffer with Him so we can reign with Him. We learn through the things that we suffer. Suffering is not always deserved. Job 4, verses 7 and 8. Job 8, verses 13 and 20. Uh, Isaiah 53, 9. We were just there. He didn't deserve it. To whom was the stroke due? Us, not him. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. No overt sin, no verbal sin, no mental attitude sin. Because the mouth reflects what comes from the heart. Okay? No overt sin, no verbal sin, no mental attitude sin. So, suffering is not always deserved. He, he was not suffering in Gethsemane for his own sake. He was suffering for us. He was suffering to equip him to go to the cross the next day. I'll look at Job here in a moment, but the second point. Suffering is often according to the will of God. Suffering can be according to the will of God. We know what this suffering was in verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Suffering is according to the will of God on many occasions. Job 4, verses 7 and 8. Let's go back to this. Suffering is not always deserved. And you know this. Job's three accusers showed up and they were supposed to be comforters and instead they were accusers. So instead of uh, being expressions of the Holy Spirit, they were expressions of Satan. They had one done with Job after the attack of chapter 1 and the attack of chapter 2. He kept attacking Job through Mrs. Job, first of all, and then through these three accusers. And it's hard to tell. I don't know how many days passed in all this. I mean, there were seven days before they even started speaking. And then they had speech after speech after speech after speech. Was it one per day? We don't know. 
But here's Eliphaz's wisdom. Job 4, 7. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? <laughs> Where were the upright destroyed? Come on, Job. This couldn't have happened to you if you're innocent. What'd you do? Out with it now. Tell us. According to what I have seen, <laughs> based on my vaunted experience now, and it's always you're always in shaky ground theologically when you substitute your experience to that's not the hermeneutic you want to employ for uh, understanding doctrine. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Okay? Now, to a point he's right in the sense of we reap what we sow and, and we're accountable for the choices we make and we do face consequences for bad decisions. But that's not the whole story. That's not all there is. There is such a thing as undeserved suffering. So it's not to say that just because you have sown trouble that you harvest it doesn't mean that any time you harvest um, trouble that means you must have sown it. Okay? It's a logical fallacy. Okay. You ever do that? Draw out the logic with the A's and the B's and the arrows? Very worthwhile. All right. But just because A leads to B... And you happen to see B, you don't just assume, well, it must be A. You can't reverse it like that. You know, it'd be like saying, well, when it rains, the street is wet. Okay, true, I get that. And then you observe, oh, the street is wet. It must have rained. Okay, you can't assume that. There's other things that could have gotten the street wet. Likewise, there's other ways that trouble could come to your life beyond just the fact that when you're a knucklehead and you plow and you sow iniquity, you're going to reap iniquity. That's not the only circumstance that puts trouble in your life. Sometimes it's angelic conflict. Sometimes it's undeserved suffering. Sometimes it's the plan of God that's teaching you through hardship. Suffering is not always deserved. Over to chapter 8 in the book of Job. Job 8. Verse 13, verse 20. Here's what Bildad has to say. Hmm. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Verse 11. Can the rushes grow without water? Come on, Joe. This is how things work. While it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish. See, you're, you're just like a papyrus without the marsh. You've, you've, you've left God. You've forgotten God. You're carnal, Job. That's why you're, that's why you're experiencing all this. Hmm. Down to verse 20. Um, no, God will not reject a man of integrity. God would never do this to you if you were walking right. Nor will he support the evildoers. So obviously, Job, what have you done? We want to hear about it. We want to help you recover. All right. Now, suffering is not always deserved. Suffering can be according to the will of God. Uh, it is 11 o'clock, but let's just real quickly look at First Peter 4, and we'll pick up here next week. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not weird. It's normal. What would be weird is if you weren't experiencing that. That would tell me something was wrong. It would tell me that uh, the adversary is uh, happy with your lackluster Christian walk. He doesn't see any reason to, to direct any fire towards you because you're not a problem in the angelic conflict. He directs his fire against the ones that are a threat. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Okay, we'll come back to this uh, next week. But look at verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. <laughs> and when you come face to face with somebody that says, No, that's not possible. It would never be God's will for me to suffer. Just take them to that verse. Okay? 
And if you have a, a black Sharpie or something, pull it out and say, look, you want me to mark that verse out of your Bible for you? You obviously don't believe it. Okay? Or pay attention and say, you know what? There is suffering according to the will of God. Maybe we need to humble ourselves and learn some truth. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, the travels of the past couple of weeks. Thank you for safe return back to Austin and the resumption of our Life of Christ class. Thank you for our, the faithfulness of our Savior on the night in which He was betrayed. Thank you, Father, that He uh, submitted His human thinking to Your thinking, that He remained faithful, that He accepted the totality of human grief. Father, thank You that He went to the cross. Thank You that He accomplished what we could not do. And because of that, we're here today to study to show ourselves approved. Thank You, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.